Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Bible, I want to ask you to turn with me this morning to, for the final time in this series, the book of Psalms. We are concluding a series that we have been in for some time now, looking together at this section of the Psalter known as the Psalms of Ascent, ranging here from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And today we're really only going to be able to look mostly at Psalm 133, although we'll look and read, at, read both this morning, but that's why Psalm 134 is sort of bookending our service here in our call to worship, as you heard it, and then even in the benediction, as you'll hear a little bit later. But Psalm 133 is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, so turn there with me. You learn a lot about someone by listening to them pray. You learn what it is they value, what they prioritize, you, you get to hear their heart, how they think about God, how they think about this world, how they think about them, their selves and their lives. You learn a lot about someone by listening to them pray. And in the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, you don't need to turn there, we get to overhear Jesus praying. He's praying to his, his father, it's known as the high priestly prayer, and He's praying, if you remember this, just hours before his death. It only serves to heighten the seriousness of what he is praying for in these moments. I wonder what you would pray for. Jesus, here he prays for several things. Chapter 17. He asks for the Father to glorify the Son so that the Son would glorify the Father. He also prays for his own disciples to be kept by God, to not fall away that they would be guarded from Satan, the evil one, that they would be sanctified in the truth. But in verses 20 and 21, Jesus turns now and he begins to pray not only for his disciples, but for all believers, for all Christians. In fact, you could say the entire church throughout all the ages. And what does he pray for? What is on his heart and mind above everything else? as he approaches the cross. John chapter 17, verse 20, here's what we read. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, meaning only the 12 apostles, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, meaning all believers, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What is on Jesus' heart and mind here above everything else? What is he most concerned about here? Beloved, his concern is the unity of the church. The unity 
of the church. Verse 21, that they may all be one. He's praying for the unity of the church. He wants them to be unified. Why? Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, Father, I want them to be unified because their unity will testify to the truth about me and the truth of the gospel. Or down in verse 23, he goes on to say, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So in other words, Father, that the world may be able to look at them and by their unity see the love of God. And all of that, Jesus says, is witnessed in the unity of the church. How does an unbelieving world believe that you have sent me? Jesus says, very often it happens through watching a loving, unified church. That is a powerful evangelism tool. And yet, sadly... It seems that there are many churches today that are not characterized by unity, but by disunity. You've been there before. You've seen this before. Divisions, church splits, warring factions, oftentimes over preferences, opinions, secondary matters. One author describes it like this. It usually results in either a cold war, whereby the two sides avoid each other, or a civil war where they tear each other apart. And yet, Jesus says, the unity among God's people, his church, is essential for the church's evangelistic witness in the world and for the glory of God. And beloved, it is that same kind of unity that is being described here in Psalm 133. David here in this very brief psalm, notice it's only three verses, he vividly and poetically captures what it is he observes, what he experiences what he feels as the people of God now gather together in Jerusalem for worship. It's a description here of the unity of God's people and the sweet unity that that, that, that blessing, that unity brings. And what we discover here this morning is that the unity that David has described here, it isn't something that can be manufactured. It isn't something that we create. It isn't something that we muster up ourselves. No, this kind of unity described here is something supernatural because it is a gift and a blessing of God. Unity, real unity in a church is a gift of God by His Spirit produced by the gospel. And so this psalm is going to help us, I think, this morning, churches, as we want to more cherish deeply the unity we have together in Christ. And also, I think what it's going to do is it's going to exhort us as a church to guard and protect and to pursue this unity all the more. For the advancement of the gospel, for the good of the church, and for the glory of God. Let's see it together. Psalm 135, or 133, excuse me. Would you stand with me as we read it together? And 134. Beginning in verse 1, a song of ascents of David. Behold 
how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the beard, running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. This is the word of God. You can be seated. I made mention of it several times in this series, but I'll mention it again. The Psalms of Ascent, they are a collection of psalms from various authors, various times, various settings. But they've been collected here. They've been grouped together here in this collection known as the Psalms of Ascent. And these were songs, remember, that the people of God would sing as they would make their annual pilgrimages to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship at one of the three annually prescribed feasts. And so as they, as they went up, as they ascended to Jerusalem, because it sat elevated, they would sing together these songs. And as we conclude here today, church, we find that Psalm 133 and Psalm 134 actually are a very fitting ending to the Psalms of Ascent. It's a very fitting ending because notice how it seems here that the psalmist has finally reached his destination. He's arrived at the temple. Psalm 133 describes the blessing he now experiences as he gathers with all of God's people in God's presence, the unity of God's people. And then in Psalm 134, it concludes here with a call to worship in verses 1 and 2. And then a benediction in verse 3. Notice Psalm 134, verse 1. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. So that's a call to worship. And then the benediction we see in verse 3. But where are they? Verse 1. They are standing by night in the house of the Lord. They're in the temple. So they have finally reached now their long-for destination, and they respond here in worship to God, blessing the Lord. And as David sees, as he observes the people of God here streaming into Jerusalem, into the temple, Psalm 133 is a celebration of unity. And so what I want to do this morning in this time is I want to do two things. Number one, I want to celebrate our unity. I want to celebrate the unity that we have in Christ. And then number two, very practically, I want to look at how we maintain this unity. How do we maintain and foster unity in the church? And I'll do it under three headings. Number one, the celebration of unity, verse one. Number two, the description of unity, verses two and three. And then number three, the source of our unity in verse 3b. And this is where we'll get really practical. How do we apply Psalm 133? So first, I want you to notice with me the celebration of 
unity. Notice how this psalm begins in verse 1. That very first word, behold. Behold. In other words, look at this. David is demanding our attention because there's something that he wants us to see. He is, he's, he's drawing our attention to something here, and he's saying, don't miss this. What does he want us to see? Verse 1, behold, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. David is drawing our attention here to the unique sight of God's people dwelling together, living together in unity. Spurgeon comments on this psalm. He says, it is a wonder seldom seen, therefore behold it. Behold how rare it is, Spurgeon says, this kind of unity in a church he goes on to say, it is the characteristic of real saints, therefore fail not to inspect it. It is well worthy of admiration. Pause and gaze upon it. It will charm you, he says, in the imitation, therefore note it well. God, he says, looks upon it with approval, therefore consider it with attention. Behold. Which, by the way, is the only command given here. So David Simply wants us to gaze upon this extraordinary sight and experience of unity among the people of God. Behold it. I mean, one can just imagine here this scene as, as these pilgrims, they are ascending here into the city of Jerusalem. And they, no doubt, have traveled from various places. They have come from various tribes. They have different backgrounds. They have different interests, and yet they have all assembled here in this one place for one purpose and one purpose alone. It is to worship God together. God's people expressing their common faith, their common bond, and David is testifying here to the sweetness of this unity. Behold it. Behold what? What are we to behold? Verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So David wants us to contemplate the goodness and the great joy that comes from unity among the people of God. First he says, notice, it's good. It's, it's, it's excellent. It is right. In other words, it's just how God designed it to be. In fact, did you know that that word good is one of the very first descriptive words in the Bible? It, it's, a, it's a word we see repeated throughout the early chapters of Genesis. As God creates the garden, he says it's good. He creates man, it's very good. As he sees man living alone, he says it's not good. And we see very quickly, don't we, in Genesis chapter 3, that when sin enters into this world, not only the destruction and the division it brings in our relationship with God, but also with one another. Sin destroys unity. And so in other words, 
For something to be good means it is to function exactly as God intends. And so David is saying here that when there is spiritual unity among the people of God, when brothers are dwelling together in unity, God says it's good. It's just the way I made it to be. But not only is it good, look there, verse 1, it's also pleasant, meaning it's, it's sweet, it's pleasing, it's something to be enjoyed, it's something to be delighted in. So if good means something is objectively right, then pleasant means something subjectively experienced. Unity is something pleasurable to experience. And it is both good and pleasant. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I wonder, I wonder, church, does that describe our unity? Is that a description of Second Baptist Church? That it is good and pleasant. Whether it be in our corporate gathering times, whether it be in our small groups, whether it be in other less formal ways, does this describe us good, pleasant? Because that's the way God has designed it to be. And he wants us to feel, he wants us to experience the joy of spiritual unity in the church. That being in a church where brothers and sisters in Christ who are united to Jesus by faith, and we become one, one Lord, one faith, one body together, brothers and sisters experiencing this kind of unity, dwelling together in this kind of unity, it should in fact be one of the most relationally pleasant experiences in the Christian life. If it's not, something's wrong. But David is celebrating this unity. It's good and pleasant. But then, in order that we might better understand how it is good and pleasant, David gives two illustrations of what unity is like, unity among God's people. Look there, verses 2 and 3. David says, it's like this and it's like that. It's like this and that. This is what unity among God's people is like. Point number two, the description of unity. Verses 2 and 3. David gives us two descriptions, and they're quite interesting. Somewhat, I think, perhaps strange to us, right? I mean, both of these are both culturally and geographically distant from us. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little odd because, I, you know, if you go to the restaurant today after church and the waitress asks you, hey, how, how was church today? And you say, oh, it was like the oil running down the beard of Aaron. It, it was like the dew on the mountain. You're going to be weird. It's strange. But that's what he says, verse 1 or verse 2. This unity, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard of Aaron. That's what unity's like. And then, second, verse 3, this unity is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. It's quite poetic. So, how is unity like these two things? Number one, first, it's like, David says, spiritual unity is like the precious oil. Verse 2, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron. That's the first image. 
that comes to David's mind as he thinks about unity among God's people as they come together for worship. And so, in order to understand how unity is like oil, we need to ask, what oil is he talking about? What is this oil? Verse 2, notice, the precious oil is running down the head and the beard of Aaron. Aaron here is symbolic of the priesthood. Really, he's symbolizing all the priests of Israel because Aaron's long gone by the time David shows up. So this, this oil, it is symbolic of the priestly office because it was the priest who was anointed with this oil. In fact, I want you to see it. Exodus chapter 30. Why don't you turn there with me? Exodus chapter 30. The Lord here, he's instructing Moses on the importance of this anointing oil. In fact, he gives the recipe for how to make it. This is essential oils before essential oils. That was free. Chapter 30, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is, 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, bl blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. And then in verse 30, you shall anoint Aaron, there he is, and his sons, and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. So just notice, observe the detail and precision to be taken in making this priestly oil. In fact, just notice, I think, a few things we see here about this oil that perhaps David is drawing on here in Psalm 133. First, this oil is a fragrant perfume. Finest spices. Myrrh. Sweet-smelling cinnamon. Cane and cassia. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds good. This, this was a sweet aroma. This was, a, this was like a perfume. I mean, you pour this baby into a diffuser, and it's going to be good. It's going to be pleasant. So David is saying, unity among God's people, it's like a fragrant perfume. It's like a sweet-smelling aroma. But this oil, also notice, is Sacred. In fact, in Exodus chapter 30, notice the specificity used in mixing this oil. I mean, only certain amounts. And the exclusiveness with which it was to be administered. It was only the priest. Only the priest were to be anointed. No one outside the priesthood. So it, it consecrated them. It set them apart as holy to the Lord. And what did the priests do? They served as mediators between a holy God and sinful men. They were uniquely set apart. And it was the high priest alone, Aaron, who could enter into the very presence of God, the most holy place, once a year. And so this 
Church, this entire scene of Exodus chapter 30, Psalm 133, it is just screaming, holy, sacred, set apart. But then, what's all this business here about beards? Back in Psalm 133, verse 2, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. Why is David drawing attention to his beard? Here's why. Because beards are more godly. Spurgeon said, growing a beard is a habit most natural, scriptural, manly, and beneficial. It's free for No Shave November. No, beards were simply part of the priestly attire. The oil's running down his beard. So get the image. It's as if the oil would be administered on the priest's head, and then, it, I mean, it's flowing down from his head to his beard. Even verse 2, look, it's running down on the collars of his robes. I mean, he's just covered in this sweet-smelling aroma. And so the imagery here is one of sacredness. It's one of being set apart. It's one of God's extravagance, God's abundance with this wonderful, sweet-smelling perfume. And David is saying, that's what unity among God's people is like. It's like that. When, when you approach the high priest, it's as if you are approaching the very presence of God. And so unity among his people, it's like the aroma of coming near to God. The very presence approaching God, the fellowship and oneness that we, beloved, share together in the church as God's covenant people, it is sacred, it is holy. And when brothers dwell in this kind of unity, it sets us apart in the world. It's like coming near the very presence of God. Sweet smelling aroma. That's what unity's like. Then, he turns and gives it a second description of unity. Look there, verse 3. David says, spiritual unity is like the dew of Mount Hermon. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, this image may be even more distant from us than the first. Dew of Hermon, mountains of Zion. What in the world is David talking about? Well, verse 3, look there. Whether you know anything at all about these mountains or not, you do know what dew is. What is dew? Dew is a symbol of fruitfulness. Dew, moisture, is critical to growth. Precipitation is essential for life. And so David is saying, this unity among God's people is like the dew of Hermon. Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the highest peak in Israel, standing 9,000 feet above sea level. And in contrast to the dry, hot, arid climate of Mount Zion, where Jerusalem sat, only about 2,000 feet high, Mount Hermon, it would be a place of cool mountain air. It would be a place of, of, of refreshment. It was, it, was, it was green. It was a place of lush, rich moisture. And so David is saying that unity among God's people, it's a sign of fruitfulness. It's a sign of refreshment. It's a sign of God's abundant blessing. That's the second image, second description of unity. But 
There's something else I think David wants us to see here. In fact, it's what ties these two images together. It's what links these two images together. I wonder if you saw it. What does David want us to see in both images? Here it is. Unity is a supernatural gift from God. Unity is a supernatural blessing from God. It is not man-made, it is God-given. Go back to that first image, the precious oil. Verse 2, there's a repeated phrase David uses twice. Did you notice? It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collars of his robe. Do you see it? Or even verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon which falls, it's falling down on the mountains of Zion. So notice both images, oil, dew, running down, falling down. Falling down where? From where? Above. From God. This is a gift of God. And then the second image, look at the dew of Hermon. This one may be a bit harder to see, but where is this dew from Mount Hermon falling? Verse 3, the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Mount Hermon is located far in the north. Mount Zion is located far in the south. These two mountains are over 100 miles apart. So how is the precipitation, how is the dew from Mount Hermon falling 100 miles away on Mount Zion? Friends, it's poetry. What does he mean? David is saying, when the people of God gather in worship in Jerusalem and Mount Zion, it is almost like the dry, arid weather conditions of Mount Zion are transformed They are transformed into those of Mount Hermon. Friends, this would take a miracle. A supernatural work of God. And in the same way, David is saying when brothers dwell together in unity, something miraculous is happening. Something supernatural is taking place. There is something sweet. There is something refreshing. There is something life-giving and spiritual and supernatural happening. And it's almost like the dew of Mount Hermon is falling on us here on the mountains of Zion as we worship. In other words, unity is a supernatural gift given by God. By Spirit. So listen to me. We, church, cannot manufacture unity. It isn't man-made. It is is God-given. Derek Kidner very helpfully comments, true unity, like all good gifts, is from above. No, small groups cannot create unity. Fellowship meals cannot create unity. Church programs do not create unity. You know what creates unity? God does. It's a supernatural gift of God. It's something spiritual. It only comes by His Spirit. And so we can't create it. It's a supernatural gift. 
But where it's present, it is holy, it is life-giving, it is sweet and refreshing. It's like drawing near to the very presence of God himself. And this is David's description of unity, which leads now to the third point. Third, the source of our unity. Verse 3b. What is the source of this unity? David gives the source. He gives the ground of it in verse 3. If unity is a supernatural gift from above, then where does God give it? What is the source of it? Verse 3b. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. So what's the source of unity then? Notice that we're... It begins, verse 3b there, with that word for. This is the ground. This is the basis, the cause, the source of this unity described in verses 1 to 3. In other words, there's no unity without this. So what's the source? Well, look what he says. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. And the blessing he has in mind here is the blessing of unity. So where has the Lord commanded the blessing? There. Where's there? Well, there is referring back to Mount Zion in the previous verse. So the Lord has commanded the blessing of unity there at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Why? Why has he commanded to bless his people with unity there? Because it was there at Mount Zion that God would meet and dwell with his people. It was there that the priests would offer sacrifices to atone for sin. It was there from which God's king would reign. There is the place of his presence. And so there is where you must go in order to experience this blessing. If you want to experience, David says, this blessing of unity described here, then there is where you have to go. But beloved, this is true no more. Because now we no longer have to go there to experience God's blessing. No, now we have, who have come to Jesus by faith, who is the only mediator between God and men, the, the one who hung suspended between heaven and earth on the cross as the final sacrifice for sins, providing us the only means of access and forgiveness here in Christ, not there, here in Jesus is where we now experience the presence and the blessing of God. In fact, look there, verse 2, David mentions the high priest Aaron. And what he's doing here is he's pointing you forward. He's pointing you to the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who has provided for us the only access into God's presence. And now, who from his throne of grace, he pours out his spirit upon his church, the new temple of God, where we experience now in the church joy and blessing and his presence and unity each and every week as we gather. Oh, how good and pleasant it is. So I wonder, in light of this psalm, is that how we think about the unity of the church? Do we 
celebrate the unity of this church like that? Are we unified? I came across an interesting t- statistic about our church this week. Get this, close to 27%, give or take, of our church membership is new to Second Baptist Church in just the last three years. Which means that one out of four people here is new to our church in just the last three years. That's high. And then you add to that that there are seven different counties of southern Illinois represented among our members. So we don't even live in close proximity to each other. So if spiritual unity isn't something that we can create, it's only bestowed by God, it's only given by God, now in Christ, by His Spirit, through the gospel, then how do we make sure to guard and protect and maintain and foster unity? That's an important question. In Ephesians chapter 4, may want to turn there. Listen to what Paul commands the church now. In light of the fact that we've been made one in Christ, unified and united by Him in faith, and therefore united to one another. Ephesians 4 verse 1, listen to what Paul says. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So you've been called to salvation in Jesus, Paul says, so walk now in a manner worthy of that. And here's how you do it. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then notice verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So notice, the unity is already there. It's, it's, it's an objective reality in Christ. Purchased by Him at Calvary, applied to the believer by the Spirit in salvation, it's there. It's an objective reality, unity is. But, it is a unity that we must maintain. Eager to maintain the unity in the Spirit. And so then, what we're called to do as believers is cherish this unity and then strive to preserve it, eager to maintain it. What I want to do in our remaining time this morning is I want to walk through how you do that. How do you maintain unity in the church? And there are eight things I want to say. Probably a lot more. I could only fit eight in. I'll be brief. Eight ways in which we maintain unity as a church. And this is where Psalm 133 gets very, very practical. Number one, we maintain unity by prioritizing it. By prioritizing it. In other words, in light of this psalm, asking ourselves, do I sense the importance of unity? Do, do I see it as my duty to maintain it? I mean, do I ever even think about unity in the church? 
Because if so, this will be then, friend, at the top of your Christian to-do list. If unity is really as valuable as David says it is, as Paul says it is, then it is something that will eclipse many of the things I think are important. For example, it will mean surrendering my individual rights, my pet peeves, my hobby horses, my preferences, my personal interests, all for the sake of maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Church will prioritize it. We'll value it. We'll emphasize it. We maintain unity by prioritizing it. Second, we maintain unity by promoting truth. Truth, hear me, isn't contrary to unity. Do not let the world lie to you. Oh, you've got your truth. I've got my truth. No, there is only truth. And it is essential for unity. In fact, it's impossible to have unity without it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and have the same judgment. In other words, unity, I want you to be united in your pursuit of truth. United in that. Which is the main reason, by the way, we have a statement of faith as a church. And why we ask every member, every potential member of Second Baptist to agree to and to submit to this statement of faith because we must be clear on the essentials. We must be clear on what we believe. We must be clear on the non-negotiables of the faith in order to be unified. Look at this quote, very helpful quote from John Stott. He writes, in fundamentals, faith, and he's talking here about the faith once for all delivered to the saints, is primary. And we may not appeal to love as an excuse to deny essential truths. In non-fundamentals, however, love is primary, and we may not appeal to zeal for the faith as an excuse for failures to love. Do you get what Stott's saying here? Most of us are often guilty here of one or the other. The first category, some appeal to love as an excuse to deny essential truth. It doesn't really matter what you believe about the Bible as God's Word. It doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus or the atonement or justification by faith. No, the fundamentals are primary, he's saying. And we have to be unified in those. But the second category, there are some, he says, who appeal to zeal for the truth as an excuse for failures to love. Know anybody like this? And often, it isn't over the fundamentals. It falls into the realm of non-essentials, secondary matters, tertiary matters, hobby horses, hills we think are worth dying on that aren't. And when we get 
into that, when we begin to do that, you know what it creates in a church? Disunity. Division. It splinters. Because what is the unity of our faith based on? What is the unity of our faith built on, friends? It's built on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the truth of the gospel. We are united around the cross. That's what I want you to see and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Notice how Paul speaks of the unity we have as the church and what this unity in the church is built around. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentiles, have now been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself, Christ, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's made us one. We're united now in Christ. It's Christ. By abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself, in Christ, one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, how? Through the cross. We unify around the cross. Verse 18, for through him, Christ, we both have access into one spirit to the Father, through Christ. Verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It is Jesus who joins us together. Where is our unity? Our unity is Christ. He must be central in our church, in our life together. He must be the uppermost in our preaching, in our teaching, in our fellowship, in our affections. We are united together around Christ. And if we want to maintain it, we'll promote this. Third, I've got to shift into another gear now. Third, we maintain unity by not passing judgment. Ask yourself, do I refrain from judging? If I'm going to maintain unity, then I must refrain from judging. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Probably one of the most misinterpreted, misrepresented verses in the Bible. You hear it all the time, right? You have no right to judge me. The church shouldn't judge me. Friend, I hate to burst your bubble. The church is called to judge you. That's what church membership is. That's what church discipline is. That's what our correction with one another is. No, Jesus is speaking here of hypocritical judgment. Judging someone hypocritically. We, we don't judge one another by a different standard than ourselves. Or... Romans 14, Paul says, let us not pass judgment. What kind of judgment is he talking about there? The context is areas of Christian liberty. Areas, matters of the conscience. He says what you eat, what you drink, secondary issues, personal convictions. We aren't to judge one another in these matters, 
But what do we remember instead? Romans 14, Paul basically says three things. You need to remember Christ is your Savior, Christ is Lord, and Christ is Judge. He's my Savior, He's my Lord, He's my Judge, He's your Savior, and your Lord, and your Judge. So we don't judge each other. So we may not all agree with the conclusions that each one comes to in these areas of conscience or Christian liberty, but Christ is our Savior, Christ is our Lord, Christ is our Judge, so do I refrain from judging in this way? Because when we do, we're being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Fourth, we maintain unity by practicing the disciplines of the church. Practicing the disciplines of the church. Acts chapter 2. What do we see were the disciplines, the practices of the early church? Well, notice here. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Luke says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then down in verse 46, he says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. What did the early church give themselves to in order to seek unity? The word of God together fellowship together, eating together, praying together, attending worship together, being in homes together. Listen, church unity is not rocket science. Church unity is cultivated by just gathering together and listening to God's word. In baseball, if, if, if you bat 500 you go to the Hall of Fame. You bat 500 in church attendance? Friend, that's pathetic. No. We cannot be unified together if we aren't together. No, you need to be with the people of God. Every chance you get, corporate worship, small group, one another's homes. I mean, that's just the biblical pattern. And and, and, and that poses challenges when we're more spread out. We're more of a, a regional church than we are a community church, but we have to be diligent to find ways. Okay? Number five, we maintain unity by refraining from gossip and slander. Listen to this proverb. Proverbs 26, verse 20. For lack of of wood, the fire goes out. You don't add fire to your, wood to your fire, what's going to happen? The fire is going to go out. And where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. Meaning, gossip only adds fuel to the fire, but where there is no gossip, where there is no slander, then quarreling ceases. One author writes this, to gossip means to betray a confidence or to discuss unfavorably personal facts about another person with someone who's not part of the problem or the solution. You want to know what gossip is? That's what gossip is. And then he says, even if the information you discuss is true, gossip is always sinful and a sign of spiritual immaturity. Immaturity. 
refraining from gossip and slander to maintain unity. Number six, we maintain unity by cultivating humility. Go back with me for a moment to Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, as Paul describes what should be our eagerness to maintain unity in verse 3, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, verse 1, sandwiched right there in between that is how we do this. And look what he says in verse 2, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, Christian, be eager to maintain unity, how? Verse 2, in all humility. In all humility. In other words, humility is the key to unity. It's the root of unity. Philippians 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Have unity. And then he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Romans 12, 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That's humility. Humility is the key to unity. Why? Because when we, church, desire to be uppermost, it creates conflict. When we want our way, it creates strife. When we long to be noticed, when we long to be esteemed, when we want control, when we want power, when we think we deserve better, when we think our way is better, when we're being unfairly treated, when we're driven by me as numero uno, disunity, division. Pride destroys unity. It destroys churches. But when we think rightly of ourselves... When we have a proper perspective of our, ourselves before God, when we stand in awe at the glory of God, it humbles us. As one author said, the stars vanish when the sun appears. When the sun appears, the stars go away. And when you stand in awe of Christ, His glory, He's front and center, enamored by him, his wisdom. Guess what? You're going to fade to the background. You're going to disappear. You're going to get small. So the gospel should humble us. And if we're eager to maintain unity, we're going to, we're going to cultivate humility. And the way you do that is by looking to Jesus. Seventh, we maintain unity by being peacemakers. Again, Ephesians 4.2, with all humility, and then notice what he says, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Unity seekers are peacemakers. Unity seekers are peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemaker. You know what a peacemaker is? I'm going to... I'm going to recommend to the elders that we offer a Sunday school class on Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. Dynamite. Here's what he says. A peacemaker is someone who has been reconciled to God in Christ. They've been reconciled through the gospel, and that reconciliation, it now so dominates and permeates, permeates their hearts and their thoughts 
and their lives and their thinking that they are eager to extend and initiate reconciliation when they've wronged others or when they've been wronged. And the peacemaker is quick to repent. The peacemaker avoids conflict. Beloved, it is one of the main ways in which we live out the gospel and we glorify God. You know why? Because God himself has made peace with us. Colossians 1.20, he's made peace by the blood of the cross and he has initiated reconciliation with his enemies. He's reconciled us to himself and if he's reconciled us to himself at the cost of his own son, how could we not be reconciled? Eighth and finally, we maintain unity by being devoted to prayer. If unity is a supernatural gift given by God, then are we praying for it regularly? Are we asking God to give it? Are we asking God to grow it? Are we asking God to protect it? Because, beloved, if we want to see greater and deeper unity in this church, which comes from God, it will mean we get on our faces before Him in prayer. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.